Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey guys, I'm so glad you joined me today. Um, as always, you know, I say this every time we do this, but when we do sex, love and addiction shows, you would think that we'd be talking to people who are a little strange or a little weird or a little uncomfortable. Or And as you've noticed with every one of these shows, we have amazing, wonderful, warm, kind, engaging, supportive, intelligent people making these difficult issues real for you. And I am so grateful for that. And this is one of those people times 10. I just really want to welcome my friend and colleague, Stacy Sprout. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Rob. I am delighted to hang out with you today. And let me tell you a little bit about my friend, Stacy. Stacy Sprout, L-I-C-S-W, CSAT, is a licensed psychotherapist from Seattle with over 24 years of experience as a therapist and a social worker. We rock, don't we? Yay, social workers. Yay! Thank you. In a variety of settings from community <laughs> mental health and hospices to private clinical practice. Since 2006, Stacy has dedicated her practice to helping individuals, couples, and groups in recovery from sex, love, and relationship addiction and compulsion. She conducts trainings on sexual ethics for professionals. And I can say this with absolute certainty, Stacy is an experienced retreat and conference speaker. She wrote a book about her own recovery titled Naked in Public, a memoir of recovery from sex addiction and other temporary insanities. Um, and I'll tell you how to reach Stacy as we reach the end of the podcast. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me. So I don't know why it's taken us so long to get you here, but I'm really thrilled that we have. I think it's because when I did my first podcast on women, love, and sex addiction, I think we ended up um, talking to Erica Garza because she had just come out with this great book yes, called Getting Off. I know Erica. And um, yes, she's a, she's a cool dude. <laughs> and and so I uh, now I'm really glad to have you. And I actually have some things I want to ask you about. But tell me what you're working on, what you're seeing, what's going on in your world, Stacey. Bring us um, some of the news from the recovery world up north. Okay. Thank you for asking. Well, my current project is to figure out how to train therapists about the unique population of working with female sex, love, sex, and relationship addicts. Because women are not the same as men. Mm -hmm. And what I've learned about this process, because I've been talking with, well, you and other experts in our field about how to work with women, is that I'm a gender variant woman. So mm, can you say more about it? Well, I don't fit the typical bell curve profile of a female in recovery. So do you mean that in terms of, and I'm going to do, do some education here. So gender expression, mm -hmm. which is, you know, whether you 
kind of express yourself in a more feminine way or a more masculine way? Or do you mean in terms of, of sexual orientation, like you find yourself liking men or women more? Or um, um, these are explanations. Or gender identity, where you find yourself identifying more with a man or as a man or a woman? Or is it none of those things? It is expression. So I appreciate the difference between expression, identity, and I didn't mean to talk about orientation. I really meant gender. And what I what I mean is there are certain qualities of my way of being in the world and writing in a book and creating a couple companies and um, calling myself a sex addict and uh, that that have been typically more masculine in in the world. Um, doesn't mean women can't do it, don't do it, do it all the time. It's fantastic. But the fact that I even called myself a sex addict in my book is is not the norm. Uh, and so in talking with therapists about how to treat women, one of the things that we've been talking about is we need to look at our language and find a language that's going to help women feel seen and mirrored and valued. So we know Marnie Free, and Marnie talks about the classic sex addiction profile of a woman, which looks very similar to the classic sex addiction profile for many men. But the really important piece, I think, when we're talking about working with women is it's all over the map. And many women hate the term sex addict. They struggle with deep internalized shame and oppression in society around their sexuality anyway. And so I'm kind of seeing two sides of that conversation of what is a female sex addict. And one is women don't like that term and don't want to identify with it. Or the other is some women identify it sort with it sort of as a badge of a badge of toughness a badge of honor um and that's more rare but you know in the younger generation there's a certain bravado around being out there sexually and uh reclaiming sexuality just like men have and not you know not not buying into that idea of shame for being even really outside of kind of typical roles and what used to be okay and what isn't and pushing the barriers. And so let me, let me just, you, you brought up a lot of different concepts and I want to try to clarify them and, and maybe make them a little bit less uh, to articulate them differently. Okay. So one of the things you brought up was a question I actually was going to ask you today, which has to do with women sex addicts. Let me ask the question then we'll fit it into what you're saying. I, I have worked with women who absolutely unquestionably are sex addicts in the same way that men are. They're a bit predatory. They have sex with, um, whoever they can, they try to want to have sex with. It's all about a lot of anonymous hookups. They often rack up high numbers, um, and they seem to be pretty, pretty impervious to what a lot of other women seem to feel, which is if I don't have feelings for the person, I don't want to have sex with them. They don't really care about that. They just want to use the person for sex. And that is very much how many, many male sex addicts, in fact, I would say the majority of male sex addicts operate, but that's not how the majority of female sex addicts operate. It seems like the majority tend to act in ways that are more the pursuit of unavailable partnerships, remaining in abusive relationships, and then leaving them only to enter the next abusive relationship, or maybe being in one relationship while also being in several others. But it's all a little bit more relationship and emotionally driven than it is sort of pure objective sex as it seems to be with a lot of the guys. So in terms of what you're talking about, can you kind of comment on what I just said? Like, how does that fit in? Well, if I go back to my book, when I wrote Naked in Public, I really had the perspective of the female sex addict, as you're talking about, 
that has a perspective more typically connected to um, uh, what we see in the profile for men. So lots of anonymous, lots of casual, lots of non-relational sex. Well, enough for me to get me to the point of powerlessness and unmanageability. And when I would reach unmanageability in one kind of sexual acting out, I would just try to stop it, but then I would switch to something else. So it was that whack-a-mole game. It would just come out in another form. And I tried to articulate that in Naked in Public, my story, to help people get a sense of that it doesn't necessarily have to be just one behavior that you do a whole bunch. It could be a whole bunch of different behaviors that add up to a real problem and cumulatively take you down. And so I think my point about trying to train therapists is giving them that perception of, well, what does this look like? And in my work with women over time, they are educating me. And what I see in the trainings, there's just not enough female specific kind of female informed approaches. And so I'm trying to find a way of articulating that and training therapists. So that's my current project. And it's been lovely to talk with people in the field who are working with women and everyone's saying the same thing. So they're saying the cultural stigma and sexual oppression and objectification of women results in horrific shame or sometimes reactive shamelessness. And that's, uh, that was more like me. I was more in the shameless, I can do what I want. I'm powerful. And, and this feeling like no one could really see what I was doing. Um, or they certainly couldn't stop me. Well, there's, there's that reactive shamelessness. I love that term. <laughs> that's, that's a great term. Uh, I would think of that as being like grandiosity mm-hmm. that's or right. arrogance which is I can do what I want and nobody's going to know and I'll get away with it and nobody's going to find out, all of that kind of stuff. That's right. And so that's connected underneath to the profound trauma, neglect, sexual abuse, uh, attachment wounding that, that women have experienced in their lives. I certainly did. And it certainly was for me. And so, you know, the label of sex addict can feel like insult to injury, but as we know, it's a descriptor that can be really helpful in arresting something that's going to kill you. And that fatality can be harder sometimes to see with the love and uh, uh, relationship addiction, but you know, where it's more subtle, you don't have that like, well, stop going out and having unprotected sex with people who beat you up, you know, kind of that. Right. It's uh, not so obvious. Yeah. But then as you know, we also, with the women struggling with love addiction, we see the domestic violence in relationships and the inability to leave. And we see the what I call the emotional domestic violence, where someone's kind of, their, their fragility and their vulnerability is just being battered over and over and over. And it really is so incredibly disempowering, and yet they still can't leave. And that was certainly my experience at times. It's interesting because, you know, I just wrote this book called Pro-Dependence, which is all about attachment and how how we will stay with our attachments over our own health, you know, and that's sort of how we're wired is to support our communities, our pair bonds, the people we love, even when they're not good for us, because our ultimate goal, I think, and I I would not see, and I would not apply pathology to this piece. I I would apply, um, I would apply pathology, meaning I would be concerned about the kind of person this person is pursuing or how long they're staying in it or who they're choosing to stay with or, you know, all of the varieties of, of that piece of it. But Mm -hmm. the fact that somebody longs and desires to have love and connect and have someone with them. And even when it isn't going right, Mm -hmm. tries to make it better so that they don't have to have the relationship end. I mean, that's just human, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. And the revisiting of those bonds behaviorally. So I want to tell you a story about this. The one adult person in my life that I would say saved my life because he was able to love me was my grandfather, Grandpa Sprout. And Grandpa Sprout used to love me by taking me out to get me a hamburger and my siblings all. So the other day, so I, I had a car accident last year and as a result of healing from the pain and inflammation, I changed to an almost exclusively vegan diet. Mm. And so I found myself not too terribly long ago starting to crave a hamburger and I didn't know why. And so because I don't want to be rigid in any form of my life today as part of my recovery, I let myself have a hamburger, burger, fries, and even some chocolate shake. And I don't even eat much sugar, but I realized after the fact, and of course I paid for it because my digestion wasn't used to that. So that was somewhat destructive to me, but I was like, I got to honor this craving. What is it? I realized I was missing my grandfather. Mm. And, and I just, I mean, so sometimes those longings, like you're talking about and you wrote in Prodependence are so powerful. And for all our insight, you know, trying to be a therapist and know stuff, we can still be drawn into these implicit longings and cravings. And then we have to figure out what to do with them. And to me, you know, a million times we can say sex addiction is not about, uh, you know, having, uh, it's about not what we do. It's, it's how we do it. So it's, can we do what we're choosing to do consciously? Uh, that's so much about recovery for me. Well, you and I have been talking about this. Um, I don't remember the name of it, and I don't really think it's necessary to mention. It's not even in print. But you, you and I were talking about running into a population, both of us, because um, I do. I see it on sexandrelationshiphealing.com when I'm doing my weekly webinar on Monday nights. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a promotion, folks. Every Monday night, Sex and Relationship <laughs> Healing, 6 o'clock, you will find me doing a live webinar. Um, but I have so many women coming in who say, you know, and this is the saddest part about this particular population to me, Stacey. It's not, it's, maybe it's because I too am a sex addict. I, I don't feel as badly for the women who are stuck in relationship after relationship or sexual situation after sexual situation that aren't working for them. Mm -hmm. Because I think that if they do enough of that, they'll find their way out. Mm. Um, I mean, if they get help, if Mm -hmm. they see it as a problem. Mm -hmm. What what I feel saddest about, and I really want to do something about, is the women that I keep talking to who are 42, 38, 45, 53, and they've said, you know what? I've been in so many bad relationships with so many losers. I've been abused so many times. I'm just not going to be with anyone ever again. Mm. And to me, that is like cutting off your nose to spite your face. Mm. You know, Mm. Um, we can teach you people like Stacy and I, we can teach you how to love better. Mm. We can teach you how to make better decisions. We can help you find communities where you can get the love that you need without having the abuse accompany it. Mm -hmm. But I do think that women in particular who've had enough of experiences where they just have felt hopeless, hurt, and demoralized decide to give up. Mm -hmm. And interesting, and I just want to say this really quick, Mm -hmm. I've noticed that some of them will then start eating. Mm -hmm. And so then they gain 50 pounds because, as you said, the need doesn't go away, Mm -hmm. but it now it might start being filled up with cupcakes and Haagen-Dazs as opposed to the desperate search for men. Mm -hmm. But it's all the same need, right? Yep. Yep. That sugar and sex are some of the first (laughs) things that kids have to reach for or, you know, food, soothing food and sexuality of their own bodies. 
And so, yeah, I mean, when I hear that, I share your sadness about that. You can say that's a conscious decision to be asexual or to be, to, to not have a relationship, but. But it's a fear, it's a fear-based decision. Yes. Reactive. Exactly. And that's a piece was like, oh, but then I feel, I feel for them too, because I think, okay, if you had a childhood where you did not have a healthy attachment, even just one then you got no role modeling. So then you grow up and you start attaching or trying to attach the ways that you were taught, which is of course dysfunctional. And then it blows up in your face. And then if you don't have the support to grieve and gain the wisdom out of that failed relationship, I think that's the missing link is the grief piece where you go, okay, wound to wisdom. This is what I learned. These are my new boundaries. This is what I do. This is what I don't want. And then every single relationship gets better after that. Well, I, I would add to that, though. I would say the grief is, is essential, or at least the acknowledgement that this is not working for me, and I have to stop. Mm-hmm. But I, I have to add, Stacy, because I absolutely speak this every week on all of the different places I do webinars and stuff, that a woman who doesn't know how to date the right man, that doesn't mean that she is inherently broken. It doesn't mean that she can't have love, or she doesn't deserve love, or there's something so wrong with her that no one would want to love her. But those are the conclusions that women often reach when they've been in so many unhappy relationships. The part that I wanted to add, Stacey, that I, that I just think is so essential is that women like this don't seek out healthy, strong community bonds with other women non-sexual. And I know that, and this is what I tell these women, you know, like I can tell you how to date. It's really easy. You know, go through your sexual history, look at all your mistakes, find some really healthy women who are going to support you and not making those mistakes again. And then you don't go get to go out on a date on a second date with anyone without running everything about that date by those women who know your stuff. I know, you know, let me just say this. I'll, I, I, I It just amuses me. You know, I'll work with a woman who says, you know, like, I absolutely never want to date a man who's married or uh, does drugs or smokes cigarettes and doesn't return my phone calls. And then, you know, she comes back from a first date and she's like, well, he's a little married and he smokes a little dope and (laughs) he drinks a little bit and he did hit his last wife, but oh, we laughed together for hours. (laughs) And that's when, you know, it's, uh, let me say this to you, Stacey, one of the signs of mental dis-unease, dishealth, not being in health is when your emotions and your intellect are out of balance. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that a lot of women who have this issue, as you describe, their emotions take over and they lose the ability to make a good intellectual choice. Yeah. Well, women's brains are structured differently than men. I absolutely believe the research And I think that creates a need for more support to counterbalance that. So I I run a women's group right now of female sex and love addicts in recovery, and several of them are dating or just getting ready to date. And it is absolutely essential. I just find that the feedback from the other women in the group is so powerful because I can get tuned out. You know, I'm kind of a one note pony. I want people to have their dating plans and I want them to check in with their support team and all the things we teach people in sexual recovery, but not everyone wants to do it that way. Uh, but another woman who says, well, how come you did that? And I'm concerned about you and I, I don't want you to do that. I wish you wouldn't. It's really powerful. Not from a place of judgment, from a place of love. I don't want you to be hurt again. So I agree with you a hundred percent. That needs to be just a top of tool list is you've got your women and you check in with them. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. 
For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. And I, I also want to say what, something about what you said a moment ago, because I think it's important that, um, again, I want to say the longing for love, the longing for connection, the longing to have someone in our life, that's a human, healthy need. Mm-hmm. How some of us who have abuse and trauma in our backgrounds may act out that need is not so healthy. But our desire to be connected, our desire to have love, our desire to be held and sexual. Those are healthy needs. It's just that sometimes, well, as I, you, you've heard this phrase, not all of us have the best picker. <laughs> sometimes we need help picking. And that's what those group, that's what that support group is for, right? Yes. It's a huge part of the support. I call it dating discernment and <laughs> starting with the plan. And then, you know, but not everyone does a plan, but just finding some way. It's, it's maybe the most important decision that anyone can ever make is who they let to be the most close to them mm-hmm. and emotionally and physically. And so why not make a plan? Like, why not treat it as serious? And part of it, I think, is the fear that if I don't, if I don't find this person, there will be no one. And I think women, you know, you talked about, you know, women of a certain age, if they want to have kids, if they want to have a family, they've got the biological drive, they have their heart set on something, their life's vision, they've been fed a story since they were kids, you know, about Mm -hmm. Prince Charming and Happily Ever After and Mom. And so it's, there's an incredible pressure that I think many women feel that, that counterbalance, you know, a therapist's advice to sit down make a plan. You know, here's some sample plans you can look at. Let's take some time with this. Like, I don't have time. Well, I think, you know, Stacy, you talk about dating being, you know, about the cultural issues. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect way to describe this because we're all taught that love should be like Cinderella. You know, you meet him you or her, you see them once across a crowd or West Side Story, you know, you see them across a crowded room, you bond with them instantly, you have endlessly wonderful conversations, you feel an incredible sexual bond, and that is the person for you for life. And the problem is, is the discernment issue, because you may have met someone with whom you might bond romantically, sexually in all kinds of ways, except they're still married, they drink like a fish, and they don't have a job. So put them aside because they're not the right person to you, even though it feels like they might be. It's so confusing. I I honor that. I, sometimes I say falling in love is the easy part. The chemistry is the yes, easy part. Yes. The the structure is the hard part. And I don't want I don't want to come across when I talk about like childhood attachment wounds getting replayed. I don't want that to come across like I'm saying that women are broken because I get that internalized shame. Like what's wrong with me? Women are so quick to blame themselves. It's just a legacy often in families. It's just a legacy. But I have to say, and I wonder if you'd agree with me on this we're still learning too. I mean, pro-dependence just came out. Like we're still learning as professionals and therapists how to support people. I'm still learning about attachment all the time. So it's it's not like somebody's figured this out and, and people are just left behind. I think our whole culture is just still waking up to the power of attachment and mm-hmm. you know how things are, are the, the bonds in families and how that affects things later. And so I hope we can let ourselves off the hook for kind of not doing it right and still be open to learning new ways. Well, you know, it's it's funny, Stacey. I mean, you, you know, we, we teach people how to drive a car and mm-hmm. they have to get a license. You have to register to vote, but nobody really gives us a whole lot of lessons in dating and sex. I think we should have to register to date. <laughs> well, 
some people, you know, some people just know how they pick the right person. They do the right thing. Some people need lessons. Now, you yeah. know, so when you talk about shame, I don't think it's shameful that I need, you know, I, I have terrible handwriting. If I want to have better handwriting, fortunately, we don't need to handwrite much anymore. But if I did, I would take some lessons in calligraphy. You know, I yeah. wouldn't say to myself, I'm a worthless human being because I don't have the ability to write and nobody can read my writing. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, when it comes to love, if we can't figure it out, or if we can't get it right, or if we've made a lot of mistakes, we give up on ourselves or we give up on love rather than thinking, oh, this is a skill set that I need to do better. Well, and especially for women. I mean, women are supposed to be more relational. I mean, I even said it, their brains are structured for relationships. So so they're supposed to. And, mm -hmm. and, and then there can be bl blamed when it doesn't work out. So you're saying there's even a higher expectation on a woman mm -hmm. within herself, not only to, you know, find the right, find her prince and all that if she's heterosexual, but, but also to, to know how to do it, to know how to make the love work. Like that's the woman's job in some way. Oh, yeah. I feel that at least for me and many, many women that I've talked to, there is that internalized pressure as part of being a woman that one should know how to do this. And if they can't get it right, that just a, that deep shame of why and the comparison, how come other people can do this and I can't? Uh, I wanted to say something about men, too, um, <clears throat> because when we talk about male sex addicts, it's really the exact same thing. You know, if I was working with a guy who was engaged in, let's say, a lot of compulsive porn use. Mm -hmm. I would probably say to him, look, dude, you know, if you want to look at porn, I guess that's up to you, but you have to talk to me first. Mm -hmm. In other words, I would ask him if I was working with him and supporting him to call me first. Mm -hmm. And then we would talk through the porn, talk about the porn, talk, you know, by the time we're done with that conversation, he's not going to look at the porn anymore mm -hmm. um, because we, he has made use of the relationship and my support to not have to need the, the porn to fix himself. Mm. And What's happened there is the same thing. His emotions, his excitement about looking at the porn gets ahead of his thinking, which is this isn't a good idea. Mm -hmm. Left to his own devices, he's going to look at the porn. Mm -hmm. But when we put that man in relationship with someone who's thinking in the moment, not feeling, mm -hmm. that thinking friend is going to say, you know, if when I think about it, I don't remember hearing you say that porn was a problem for you. Maybe it's not a good idea, even though it feels good to you right now. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing with dating. You know, when we're dating the wrong person, it may feel wonderful, but our thinking is not in place and we need other people to say, well, you know, he is still married and he's a heroin addict. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah, I agree. And you know, you brought up pornography. Can I segue into women using porn? Please. And women in particular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you've been, you've done some writing about the warning signs that adolescents might be addicted to porn. And we know that porn exposure is getting younger because there's so much accessibility to it now. You know, people talk about age 11 as a common benchmark, but some people say 13, some people say younger. Uh, so I read a study, now this is three years old, so you know that everything in it has gotten more enhanced probably over the last three years, would be my guess. So this study in Marie Claire said that 3,000 women were surveyed, and of that, one in three women watch porn every week, and one in 10 watches it every day. So... That was really kind of shocking to me when I saw that. And I think we have to include in the conversation when we're talking about pornography, and I know you do this, you're aware of this, that, that there are many women who, who are using it. They're certainly affected by it, even if they're not use, using it. And so the question is not so much like, are women using porn or even should women use porn? I mean, Erica talked about her story, Erica Garza, it's a beautiful story talking about just the pain that she had 
But I think that some of the feedback that the women in this Marie Claire article said were that porn changed their belief about gender. And mm. so it started to what change them. Well, namely that men should dominate women, that the porn that they were looking at introduced certain ideas about how a relationship should work. And that mm-hmm. becomes internalized. And so those are some, it's just interesting as we talk about what are the core beliefs that women have and, and what are the influences that on, on that culturally and you know, again, I talked earlier in my book and with the idea of kind of reactive shamelessness, there can be a certain reactive domination mm-hmm. that I think that female sex addicts specifically can get into. I am, I've been hurt, so I'm not going to allow myself to be hurt. Well, it's also kind of taking on the role of the aggressor. Exactly. And so identifying with that as a way of having mastery and not not being wounded. And so that was something that I related to. I talked about that in my story somewhat. And I was talking to a beautiful colleague of mine recently about how that tough exterior is really kind of a thin eggshell Mm. for this population that underneath there is so much vulnerability and the, the potential for wounding again. And that's, you know, coming back to our discussion about women dating, when someone doesn't make their plan and they don't know what their boundaries are going in, Mm -hmm. and then they're, they're subject to those really powerful feelings of chemistry and attraction or just being wanted and being, you know, noticed, which are great, which are fabulous and very influential. Um, if they if they haven't sorted out their boundaries, then they really are vulnerable. There is a risk of of being hurt. And and I want to and I want to use the language that I've been using because I'm playing with this right now. This concept. So what you're saying, and from my perspective, is if they're leaning so heavily into their emotional self that they're unable to tap into their intellectual self, then they're not going to be able to make a good decision. And that's where the help of others comes in. Yes, they need they need an external hard drive that is not <laughs> right. being influenced by right. all of those fabulous chemicals and pleasure right. centers and to to help them offset. And there's no shame in that. Like no. I want to say that loud and clear because I know women who could dress me like I look like the mo- like like Leonard DiCaprio. And I know women who could take me to a store and they wouldn't know a single thing to pick out for me because they have no sense of design, but they feel like they should because they're women and they should understand mm-hmm. fashion. You know what? We are who we are. We have the strengths that we have. If you don't know how to pick someone or pick the right someone or stay with the right someone, find mm-hmm. people who have and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wanted to say one more thing, Stacey. I wanted to get your opinion about this. What I call a date. What is a date? Mm. For anyone who's struggled with dating and intimacy and who tends to get lost in their emotions and not make good decisions, in my mind, a date is when two people in separate cars go to a brightly lit, ugly coffee shop. And they each have a cup of coffee and a donut or a piece of pie, and they spend an hour together chatting, and then they leave in separate cars. And if that goes well, then maybe in a day or two, they might go out for a walk together. How does that sound? Because that's not how our culture sells us dating. I hear a lot about well, about wine and candlelight and music and, and all the things that leave you stuck in that emotional place where you can't see clearly. Mm, that is a great point. Do you work with your women around, around, date, around what a date is? Yes. Although, I mean, so in the dating plan, we talk about the kinds of environments to set themselves up for success and the kind of environments that would be more leaning toward a more rapid progression of what's going to happen. So, Mm -hmm. and I mean, I go back to my own experience when I was dating and my sponsor said, why don't you wait to go over to his house? a little bit longer, right? right, right? right. I mean, it sounds like rocket science when you're high on all those endorphins. Um, It's like, huh, what, uh, you know, but 
it's interesting because I think there is a I mean, I, I feel sad about some of the changes I've seen in our culture in terms of normalizing the hookup culture, where mm. having sex on the first date is just how you get attention or how you get to know someone or it's what you're expected to do, you know. And or, yeah, or how you make sure you get to see them a second time. Exactly. How to get a boyfriend or how to get, you know, a long-term relationship. So that piece, you know, what you're talking about, I, I think is there's a real need to reintroduce the charm and absolute delight of the dating process of putting your toe in the water and then stepping back out and then waiting. And I think it's terrifying. That goes back to what you said about needing our women to call and go, oh my gosh. And I mean, I did that when I was dating in recovery. I, I would bookend, we call it call before. Have the experience, mm-hmm. call after. Mm-hmm. Right. I got so much advice. You know, someone said, go for a walk. You get to know someone there. So I'd go for a walk around Green Lake in Seattle. And then I realized, wow, three miles is a really long time with someone I'm just meeting. Like that was a bad choice. Right. And dinner and dinner is nice, but coffee is better because coffee can get away from them. <laughs> yes. During the day. You know, so I think what I hear you saying, and I love this message, is that Really, and we don't, I know you don't, I don't want to come across like, it's all about caution, you know, I don't. But when you think about how powerful those pleasure centers are when they get stimulated and how much maybe the longing is to make something work, setting up the dating plan to kind of counterbalance that by day dates and short periods of time and not going to someone's house. And separate cars. And separate separate cars. cars. Yeah. It's super wise. I really do support that. And I want to, I want to, I want to challenge your thinking about um, it being, it ta- I don't think that takes the romance out of it. Um, you can still have all the feelings that you have for the person in a brightly lit, ugly coffee shop, even though you're only going to be there for an hour. It's just that you're not going to get them to act them out mm-hmm. by going to this person's house and having sex with someone you don't know or starting to date this person three times uh, a day because they're just so special and fabulous you can't get away from them. Yes. No, I agree with you. I, the feelings in some ways, the vulnerability when you go slower is much, much higher. And it can be, there's a lot of anxiety that can happen. I mean, distress tolerance, we call it, is it needs to be in place, those skills before someone starts dating. And, and let me say something to you, Stacey Sprout, about men who date. Um, in recovery, mm-hmm. um, the men that I've worked with who have had lots of anonymous sex, but really didn't allow themselves to be vulnerable. They only dated people who were so attracted to them that the people they dated were in that, uh, you know, emotional high. So they didn't have to worry that the person might not like them. Mm-hmm. The men that I work with who are now honestly going into dating, just trying to get to know someone mm-hmm. are terrified. Yes. <laughs> doesn't like me. What if we don't get, it's like working with an excuse expression, but it's like working with a 13 year old girl on her first teen date. Will he call me back? Will he only I'm working with 40 year old men. (laughs) And the truth is, is they have worked so hard to make sure they were never vulnerable by leading with sex that when they put the sex and the sexuality aside and you know leading with status and all of that and they just show up as themselves mm-hmm. they're terrified that not they're not going to be loved too mm-hmm. so don't think it's just women i want to say that yeah. we're scared too Yes, I appreciate you stating that and just making a claim for the experience of men because, you know, we often get frozen in our sexual development when we're young because something traumatic happens or we don't know how or we don't have enough support or we go too quickly. And so oftentimes it's the first healthy dating experience that people in recovery have or people who are just wanting to reclaim kind of the innocence of dating. And Mm -hmm. so I honor that vulnerability and I think it's really good to plan for it. Hands off. 
lights on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is my friend Stacy Sprout, author of Naked in Public, therapist and, and speaker in Seattle. And Stacy, how would people reach you if they want to drop you a note or get a hold of you? Probably the easiest would just go to my website, www.stacy with an I, S-T-A-C-I, Sprout, S-P-R-O-U-T dot com. And if they wanted to buy Naked in Public, is that on Amazon or can they find that? Amazon it is. Well, Stacy, I hope we could do this again. In fact, I hope we do this a lot. And <laughs> thank you for all the contributions you make to the field, especially making it a, a shame-free zone for women to heal from sex, love, and relationship issues. It's, it's, it's hard enough to talk about it. Having someone to hold their hand through healing is a gift, and you bring that. So thank you, Stacy. You are welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be with you. And thank you for your work in educating the public about what's going on and how to get better. One day at a time. Talk to you all soon. All right. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chemsex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.